Today's verse is from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. It's actually printed on page 1011 in the Blue Bibles in the pews. It's also projected overhead if you'd like to follow along. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you uh, so much, Jeff, for reading. And uh, also thank you, Jung Sun Moon, for leading us in worship, for making a, a joyful noise unto the Lord. Um, thank you for that. And let me add my voice to the other voices uh, this morning to welcome you. I'm, I'm very glad that you've joined us for worship here at HCC Northside. True religion. That's what our series in James is about, a a devotion, a a commitment to God, a a faith in Jesus that's real, that's meaningful, that's powerful. There's a recent magazine profile of Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, one of the, the biggest and most powerful companies in the world. And Bezos has extremely high standards for who gets to work at his company. According to the story, he doesn't ask job applicants questions like, what are your strengths and weaknesses? Or tell me about a time when you had a conflict with someone, and how did you resolve that? Uh, instead, it's, he asks them questions to test their intelligence, logic questions, like, why are sewer covers round? Why, why are manhole covers round? Uh, the, the job they're applying for has nothing to do with sewers, but he wants to see how smart you are. And then each round of hires are then responsible for hiring the people after them who are supposed to be smarter than they are. So in theory, Amazon employees are increasingly more intelligent and skillful. That's the litmus test for an Amazon employee, someone who's basically a lot smarter than everyone else. So what's the litmus test for true religion? What does real faith look like? Well, true religion, according to James is about what you do with the word. What you do with God's word, what you do with the gospel, is the observable evidence of the legitimacy of your confession, of your faith. And James gets at this from three different angles. He talks about receiving the word in verses 19 through 21, then doing the word in verses 22 through 25, and then proving the word in verses 26 and 27. So receiving, doing, and proving That's what true religion looks like. It's about what you do with the word. 
So let's pray together and ask, as we ask God's help as we, come, as we come to hear his word. Hopefully not just to hear, but by his grace to receive it and do it and prove it. But let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us. We think of what Jesus himself says, that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So help us to do that, Lord. Help us. Uh, the passage like this reminds us of how we're still works in progress. We see how you're changing us, but we also see how much more we need to change. And that can only happen by your grace. So give us that grace this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So true religion is what you do with the word. And first of all, it's about receiving it. Receiving the word. Verse 21 says to receive the implanted word. But the way James gets to this point is through your anger. So read with me again, starting in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So quick to speak, or quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. My, my best friend in, had, was in a band in college called Slow to Speak. It was a, a singer-songwriter thing. Uh, my friend was on vocals. Another guy was on acoustic guitar. Uh, they weren't very good, uh, but that's what they were called. And they, they took their band name from this verse. Uh, so this verse is, is unintentionally nostalgic for me. But what was James doing here? What, what, what's, his, what's he saying? Well, he's following the lead of other writers of the Bible. He's, he's following the lead of Jesus' own teaching. He's tapping into a bigger stream of biblical teaching about watching out for your anger, about what you say when you're angry. Quick to listen, but slow to speak, slow to anger, which is basically the reverse of what happens when you're actually provoked to anger. If you make me angry, I'm usually not quick to hear. I'm usually very, very slow to hear. I want you to hear. You need to hear what I've got to say to you. I'm, I'm declaring judgment on you. I'm restoring justice to the universe, or at least to my universe. So you need to shut up and hear my justice. But James says that the way of true religion, the way of wisdom, the way of faithfulness is actually the other way around. Now, James is going to talk about anger again in a few chapters. And I, I believe if, if we follow our schedule as planned, it'll be Sunday, December 15th. We'll have a lot more to say about anger, about where it comes from and, and how you fight anger. So if you're struggling with anger, uh, I'll invite you back here in a month or so. We'll hear more what James has to say. But think about what anger is. The most helpful explanation that I've, for me that I've heard is that anger is displeasure at what is wrong. It's displeasure at what is wrong. And in itself, anger is actually a good emotion. The Bible talks about God as angry sometimes. In the Gospels, Jesus is angry sometimes. Jesus gets displeased at what is wrong. If you see injustice, if you see cruelty, and if you don't get angry, if you're not moved to do something, or you want to do something, but you don't know what to do, but if something truly wrong does not displease you, then something's wrong there, isn't there? So it's not that anger itself is the problem. The problem is that because of our sin, because of our desires that have gone astray, how we define what is wrong has gone wrong. When I'm angry at you, when I'm slow to hear, when I'm very fast to speak what is on my mind, I am displeased at what is wrong, and what is wrong is something I want. 
my comfort, my way, my peace and quiet, my kingdom, my something. That's what's gone wrong. So I'm angry at you. But that anger, James says, does not produce the righteousness of God. That very simply means that that kind of anger does not please God. It's not what, it's not what he wants. And, you know, I've come to believe that when it comes to anger, there are basically two types of people. There are people who know that they struggle with anger, and they're, they're bothered when they get angry. And then there are people who are, who are blind to their anger, you know, that everyone else can see it. I'm sure I'm oversimplifying things a bit, but, but not much. And for some people, it's explosive anger that comes out. And for other people, it's the, the simmering, withdrawing, quiet kind of anger. But however it comes out, I've come to believe that anger is a universal struggle. Not everyone here struggles with pornography. Not everyone here struggles with alcohol. Not everyone here struggles with greed. But I suspect that all of us struggle in one way or another with anger. And my own family will tell you, be the first ones to tell you that, that I am one of them. That they have front row seats to my anger. But it doesn't produce the righteousness of God, James says. So, so what do you do with that anger? How, how can you be slow to anger but quick to listen? Well, James says you need to receive the word. In verse 21, he, he widens the scope from anger to All of your sin. Look at that again, verse 21. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's getting at sin in all of its ugliness and pervasiveness. It's not just anger. It's all of it. All of your sin. It's always there and it's always ugly. So put it away, James says. He's talking about repentance. Repentance means that you turn away from your sin because at that very same moment, you're turning to God's grace in Jesus Christ. That's what repentance says. And notice here that as you put sin away, as you put your anger away, you receive with meekness God's word. Now notice how James calls this the implanted word. It's, it's already there. He's talking about the gospel. Uh, Verse 18 from last week's passage called it the word of truth. It's the gospel. Uh, The good news that, as Tim Keller says, that even though in yourself that you're more sinful than you ever would have believed, but in Jesus who died for you, you're more loved than you could have ever have dared to hope. And James is talking to a church. You've believed that word, he says. God has planted it in you. It gave you new life. And it's able to save your souls. Scholars say that he's probably referring there to your future salvation. When one day you stand before Christ and you're accepted as holy and righteous because of grace alone, which you receive through Christ alone. It's it's future. So look at the time frame James is getting at. God's word, the gospel, was at work in your past when it was implanted in you. And it will be at work in your future when you are saved fully and finally. So it's past and future. So what about now? What about the present? Now, you need to receive that word. You need to trust that word. You need to receive it as the authority and the guide of your life. It's at work now. So you need to receive it. If you trust the gospel, 
you need to know that the gospel isn't just something that has to do with your past and with your future, but you need to know that the gospel, that God's word of truth, is his power to change you and strengthen you now, in this moment. So you need to receive it. Every day, you need to to receive it. The key part here, I think, is with how you do that, is with meekness, James says. Humility. How do you change? How do you put away all all that's filthy and rampant? By receiving his word, by listening to and obeying his word, which is an act of humility. It's very humbling to come to grips with the fact that you're not yet who you want to be. You're not yet who God wants you to be. It's very humbling to wrestle with that. But the point of that humility isn't to make you feel bad about yourself. The point of that humility is to drive you to the only thing that can actually change you. The transforming power of God's grace, which he gives to you in his word. So to angry people, to people who are beset with every kind of sin and failing, what should you do? Receive the word, which you've already believed, and which is going to save you with humility. That's what true religion looks like. Second, doing the word. True religion looks like receiving the word, and it also looks like doing the word. That's the point in verses 22 through 25. Doing the word in contrast to just hearing it. So verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Now, it's not that James is contrasting doing with hearing. He's contrasting doing with hearing only. If you do the word, that means that you've also heard it. You have to hear it to do it. But the problem isn't with hearing the word. It's the problem is with hearing it and only hearing it. In other words, James is talking to the person who knows at some level what it means to trust Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus, but who, hasn't, who isn't actually following Jesus. There's a superficial acknowledgement of, of true spiritual realities but no real life of obedience that's coming out of it. That person is deceiving yourself, James says. It's not that you're deceiving other people. It's not that you're putting on a mask and you're giving other people a false impression of who you are. Actually, the victim of your deception is yourself. You think that you've got true religion, but you don't really. You're a hearer only That's what I'll call this person. It's a hearer only. And when you hear only, when you're a hearer only, but not a doer, you're also a forgetter. James uses an illustration of looking into a mirror and forgetting what you see to show what it's like to hear the word, but not to do it. It means that you're forgetting it. Look at that in verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Think about the absurdity of this scene, this illustration. When you look into a mirror, you probably remember what you see. Your own appearance is deeply ingrained into your psyche. You look and you remember. You don't forget. It would be like... Rating your kids Halloween candy, 
which statistically is basically every parent. Uh, guilty, shameless. But it's like eating your kid's candy and then going to the bathroom to check and see if you have chocolate on your face, but then instantly forgetting whether or not you have chocolate on your face. The whole point of going to the mirror in the first place is gone. I remember a moment from college and when I was sitting next to a friend on a couch in a, um, a, a dormitory common room, and there was a large mirror above the couch behind us. And there was some kind of fraternity or sorority social event. People were, were getting dressed up for it. They are meeting each other. Uh, I wasn't in a fraternity myself. Uh, paying for my friends didn't make sense to me. Uh, so we were just sitting on, the, we were sitting on the couch watching the scene, people going by, uh, people, uh, everyone meeting up to go out to some kind of semi-formal thing. And every single person who walked by looked at themselves in the mirror Check themselves out from top to bottom. Every single person. It was like nicotine in a cigarette. People had to look. And what they saw, I promise you, it stuck. If they didn't like their hair, if they didn't like their dress, if they didn't like the tie, they went and did something about it. So you see, there's an absurdity in James' illustration. No one looks at yourself in the mirror and then instantly forgets what you look like. People just don't do that. But that's what a hearer only is like. Someone who hears the word, but who doesn't do the word, doesn't obey the word, forgets. Look how James describes the the doer. Verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Notice how he's gone from an illustration of looking into a mirror to now to looking into the perfect law. Scholars say that he's probably referring to the teachings of Jesus. A lot of people have in mind Jesus as just a miracle worker, someone who does a lot of cool things. He certainly did a lot of miracles. But the writers of the New Testament go to great pains to show us that Teaching and preaching was actually at the real heart of his earthly ministry. So the perfect law is the teaching of the perfect son of God. And that law, James says, is the law of liberty. Which almost sounds like a contradiction in terms. Law and liberty. Rules that don't constrain you, but but give you freedom. How does that work? Think about it this way. I imagine that your company, where you work, has pretty strict accounting procedures. How you spend your company's money has severe restrictions. You, you don't have freedom to do whatever you want with that money. And everything you do, you, you have to record it, don't you? There are heavily enforced rules for what you can do with the man's money, right? And that can be so tedious. I've got to do the same thing. Every month, Josh Wellinghoff, our our church administrator, office administrator, sends me the expense report. And I've got to go in and categorize every time I've had coffee with someone, every time, every kid's city purchase, every social media boost post, every single thing. And it's, it's so restricting. But in that restriction... In the law of your company's financial policies, there's actually freedom and flourishing. 
Because if you really did spend money any way you wanted to, and if everyone else spent money any way they wanted to, then you'll go bankrupt. And then you'll really lose your freedom. You'll really not flourish then. That's how James is talking about this law, about what Jesus commands us to do. How, it, yes, it, it restricts us, it binds us, it obligates us, because in that obligation, there's actually freedom to flourish. It's freedom for my own self-interest. It's the freedom of living the life that God wants me to live because that life is actually the life of true flourishing. And it's a freedom where the power to obey that law doesn't come from yourself. It's from God's Spirit. The Old Testament promised a day when God would pour out his spirit on his people, and he would write the law into their hearts, which means that, that the power to obey this perfect law, that this law of liberty, that that power doesn't actually come from yourself. And the person who perseveres in doing that law, the person who's obedient to God's word, is, James says, not a forgetter, but a doer who acts, and who will be blessed for that doing. He's probably talking about, about future blessings in heaven. The doer will be rewarded one day. So he's encouraging the doer, and he's warning, he's challenging the hearer only. So who is the hearer only? Are you the hearer only? I wonder if, for some people, there's a lot of unease when you hear James in this part. Uh, James is really good at making people feel uneasy. And the reason you get uneasy is because you don't have to think very long and hard before you can think of all the ways that you are not always a doer. Our confession of sin earlier acknowledged that we're not always doers, that our, our hearts are out of tune. And for you, no, you don't always obey. Sometimes you forget. But your conscience is bothered by that. And you seek God's forgiveness, you, you, seek, you pray for his help, your sin bothers you. And the good news, I think, is that the kind of person, that kind of person, the, the repenting sinner, is probably not the person James has in mind here. Instead, the here only is the person who's not bothered. The person who's not looking for any forgiveness. The person who's not looking for God's help. I come from a part of the country where, at least historically speaking, being a part of a church gives you social capital. Uh, if you want to climb the ladder, if you want to get elected to office, if you want to get ahead in just about anything, you need to publicly identify yourself with something religious that most people are cool with. And it's really easy in that culture to be a hearer only because you still get these social advantages. Now, in Chicago, you don't really have that temptation because being here this morning doesn't really give you any social capital. But this is what I wonder about, how you might be tempted by. To say no to doing, to say no to the perfect law of Christ because you don't really believe that that's where freedom and flourishing is. Sinclair Ferguson says that when you look at someone who rejects God's law, when you look at someone who says no to God's word as an authority over their life, and you start to peel back the layers, what you actually discover is that person is a legalist at their core. 
there, deep down, is a person who believes that God never gives me anything. He makes me earn everything from him. And obeying his word is just something else I have to earn from him. And I can't do it. I can't ever measure up. So I just, I'll throw it off and run in the other direction. The hearer only, the person who does not do this law, might actually be a legalist at heart. But the person who does the law perseveres, James says, because you know it's the law of liberty, freedom. Yes, there will be heavenly blessings one day, but it's not a law that qualifies you to be loved by him. It's an obedience that is empowered by God's spirit working in you, not something that you do on your own. The hearer only doesn't get that. But the doer does. And that's what true religion looks like. So receiving the word, doing the word. One more. Proving the word. True religion is about what you do with the word, and that includes proving the word, or proving that you are a doer of the word, or proving that your religion is true. The last section here, verses 26 through 28 I don't really change the subject from the last section. It's still about doing the word. But it gives three very practical examples of doing the word. Three practical ways to prove the word. To prove that your religion is true. Controlling your speech. Caring for the helpless. And being spiritually and morally different from the world. Now, James isn't saying that these three examples are the only three ways to, to prove the word, to be a doer. Instead, he's saying, let me show you what real life religion looks like. And it starts with your tongue. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Um, a bridle, for those of you who aren't horse people, is the apparatus that goes on the horse's face and holds the bit in the horse's mouth, which is what you use to control the movement of the horse. Trust me on that. I Googled it. So James is saying, let's get to real life here. Control your tongue like a man controls a horse. That's true religion. That's how you prove the word. And if you don't, and James is really blunt here, your religion is worthless, he says. The word for worthless is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe pagan idolatry. So if you're a hearer only and you can't control your, your tongue, you can't help yourself with words of anger and cruelty and emptiness, then your religion is no better than paganism. Another way to put it, that if you want to get an honest look into your heart. If you want to see how you're doing spiritually, how you're really doing spiritually, listen to yourself. Are you hearing grace? Are you hearing kindness? Are you hearing truth? Are you hearing condemnation? Are you hearing an endless monologue of nothing that really matters? Are you hearing constant self-promotion? Prove the word, prove true religion by controlling your speech. But it's not just your speech. It's also what you do with other people and with your own purity. Verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
In human society during Bible times, orphans and widows were the two most vulnerable types of people. There was no social safety net, no social security. They didn't have anything approaching legal protection. So widows and orphans were the most helpless. And actually, James is picking up a theme in the Bible that goes way back. Listen to these few verses from the Old Testament. Exodus 22.22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Isaiah 117, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. One more, Psalm 68, 5. This is who God is. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Now, today, we live in a different world. Uh, widows, at least in our part of the world, have much better protections than in the past. But there are different needs. There are different kinds of needy people. According to UNICEF, the United Nations uh, Children's Emergency Fund, there are 153 million orphans in the world today. An orphan, technically speaking, is someone, as a child, who's lost at least one parent to war, poverty, disease, natural disasters, accidents, or abandonment. And of that 153 million, 26 million have lost both parents. They're double orphans is the term. In the United States, there are 437,000 children in the foster care system on any given day. And then the number of adoptions of these children, both internationally and domestically, has declined significantly in the last several years. But there are other needy people. According to the UN Refugee Agency, 70.8 million people have been forcibly displaced from their homes. There are 80,000 homeless people in Chicago. We go on and on. Immigrants, people with with mental and physical disabilities. You you, you hear these statistics. Hundreds of millions of people. And Where do you even start? Well, I think, practically speaking, proximity and capacity are two helpful principles. So who's the needy person near you? Maybe it's your next-door neighbor who's getting too old to shovel his sidewalk anymore. So you could shovel his sidewalk. Or maybe it's the family down the block who's struggling in so many ways, and you don't even know how many ways they're struggling, but maybe you can be their friend and and open up your life to them. And your capacity is important, too. If some of you have the capacity to travel internationally and to build clean water wells in impoverished places, and some of you will never, ever have that kind of capacity. If you're, caring for, if you're caring for a child with special needs, if you're caring for a parent with Alzheimer's, if, if you're someone like that, you're probably not ever going to have the capacity for international engineering projects. You just don't have the capacity for it. But within your capacity, within the proximity of people close to you, who's there? Who's needy? I can brag on my dad here. He's the president of a, of a nonprofit that serves people with disabilities, and he's almost 71. He needs to retire. He hasn't retired yet because he's kind of, an, of a workaholic. But it's more than that. He told me last year that he can't quit until he's prepared his organization to serve the skyrocketing numbers of children who are born to mothers addicted to meth. It's, it's like fetal alcohol syndrome, but with meth. And so many babies are coming to the world today with those very severe problems. And my dad wants to help them. That's, that's why he won't retire yet. 
The point isn't, here's this narrow category of, 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 of people who, if, you, if you're not doing X, Y, and Z for them, you're not a real Christian. It's, it's not that. The, the point is, is that true religion, proving the word, means that you, just, you don't just live for yourself. It means caring for other people, especially the most vulnerable people. That's true religion. And so is this third example, keeping yourself unstained from the world. The world in biblical language means this human realm that has turned away from God. And the temptation for every Christian in every age is to start to look like the world that you live in, to its values, its judgments. If you're from the Bible Belt, where I'm from, the, the world is a, an inch-deep veneer of Christianity and very pro-Christianity on the surface of things, but can be very capable of deeply unchristian things. If you're in a place like Chicago, it's a very different place. The world here is secular, maybe even hostile to Christianity at times. But wherever you are, you've been called out of the world as part of the church of Jesus. But it's really easy to want to look like that world just like the world, to live for leisure and comfort, to to worship your sports team, to to hate people who disagree with your politics. True religion means keeping yourself unstained from that. It, it, It means looking different. That's how you prove the word. So receive the word, do the word, prove the word. That's what true religion looks like. And you know, if you're anything like me, there is more than enough here to see just how far, how far you fall short. I'm a person who struggles with anger, who doesn't always receive the word. Sometimes, if I'm honest with myself, I'm a hearer only. And sometimes, I don't prove all that much. That's why I need Jesus. That's why I still need Jesus. Because, you know, just as much as my failures here are obvious and my successes are only ever qualified, Jesus is different. If you want to see someone whose tongue was truly bridled, who only ever spoke grace and truth, look at Jesus. If you want to see someone who really cared for the neediest people, look at the person who touched the leper with his own hands, who healed a desperately bleeding woman, who rebuked his own disciples for turning away kids from being with him, who welcomed the people who were rejected and despised by everyone else. Look at him. If you want to see someone unstained by the world, but in the world and helping the world and loving the world at the same time, look at Jesus. Now, I don't always measure up to the person James is calling here for, but Jesus does, always. And he died in my place. He died in your place. And he rose from the dead, and it gives you his spirit to bring about this obedience. And from this Jesus, the Bible says, comes grace upon grace. It's grace stacked on top of grace. Grace to forgive me for my failures. Grace to empower me for faithfulness faithfulness now. And grace to finally save my soul fully and finally one day. It's grace upon grace. And the more you rest in that grace, the more you know that his word is a word of grace, the more you can receive it and do it and prove it. That's what true religion is all about. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you that in him, everything we were meant to be is there. We praise you that he stands in our place. Give us grace upon grace through him so that we would receive your word and do it and prove it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.